And good afternoon. Welcome to Daring Live, everybody. How's it all going? I hope everybody is safe and well on this delightful Thursday. Um, I really don't need to introduce this next gentleman, Mr. Tony Trishka. Our guest, obviously, today uh, referred to NPR as the great banjo liberationist, known as the father of modern bluegrass. He's a living legend of banjo and in music in general. Uh, he is also the only guest to appear on Deering Live for a second time today, which is very exciting. And uh, we'll be talking about all things banjo, uh, as well as his brand new album, Shall We Hope. Please welcome Mr. Tony Trishka. Tony, how are you? Very good, Jamie. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful day here in northern Jersey, a beautiful sunny day in the 70s. We needed it. Is it dry, humid? How are we, how are we feeling? Very dry. It's just a perfect day. Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. Very good. And uh, my, my co-host, Mr. David Bandrowski, joins us. He's back in safe Buenos Aires, uh, still live from the south. But welcome back, Dave. <laughs> Good to see both of you all. Now, before we, before we get in, I'm going to invite you to play a song in a minute. But right before we went live, you were playing a little ditty. And that little ditty was our dear <laughs> phone number. Can you... <laughs> <laughs> demonstrate what we're talking about because it was cool uh what's the, the daring phone number is it's a very cool number what i have is well forget the 800 number because zeros are tough to deal with but 845-7791 that's 845-7791 nicely done and uh what you can do one strategy for writing tunes composing tunes banjo tunes or anything is to take each number of a phone number and assign a note to it in other words eight would be the octave, let's say you're in surprisingly G, because I don't think I've ever played in G, but this is a grand experiment. Anyway, there's eight, there's the octave, and then four, eight, four, five, eight, four is the fourth note of the scale, C. D is the fifth, the open first string. And then seven, seven, I'll choose the flatted seventh. And it's twice, seven, seven, nine, there's the ninth note of the scale, and one. Oh. I didn't have a chance to really come up with the whole tune, but <laughs> moments before, I figured, let me see what their phone numbers. It's a really nice phone number you got. There. <laughs> we, we, we specifically chose that phone number to make it sound as pretty as it could. In terms of all the phone numbers in my phone, that was the prettiest, so I chose. Happened. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just coincidence. We appreciate that, Tony. Thank you very much. And uh, maybe maybe we'll uh, contract you out for some hold music or something. That could be fun. But um, let's. Uh, how, how about we start off with a tune? I'm gonna I'm gonna change your mic settings, and uh, I'll let you uh, have a little play. Okay, I'll start with a, a Bill Monroe tune that he wrote in 1966 for his banjo player Lamar Greer, uh, who was a big influence on me actually. And uh, Lamar, David Greer's dad. If you're familiar with David Greer's. He's totally amazing, one of the best bluegrass guitarists who ever lived. Anyway, Bill Monroe wrote this tune called Crossing the Cumberlands, which unfortunately he never recorded with Lamar, but I'll play a little bit a little bit of it for you right now.
that was, that was, that was fantastic. a great lonesome tune. Thank you, Bill Monroe, for composing that. What recording is that on? That's a really good you know? question. Uh, I, you can, I don't think you can get any Bill Monroe albums anymore. It's actually, you can find it on YouTube with Lamar Greer. It's a live recording with Lamar Greer and Byron Brown. Okay. Fiddle. That, that would probably be the best place to get it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, let's jump right in and talk about your your, your album that was released um, you know, recently. And uh, I know you've been working on it for a long time. And uh, I'd, I'd love to, you know for you to, to tell us about it. Uh, the album is called Shall We Hope? And I started working on it about 12 years ago. Uh, I On my last album before this one, uh, which is called Great Big World, I wrote a couple of vocals on there, one of which was Wild Bill Hick Hickok, telling the story of that Western lawman. And uh, sort of got me into the head of writing lyrics. And so for some reason, I just decided I'm going to write a song about a riverboat gambler. And I took uh, the paradigm or the the setting of a Jimmy Rogers blue yodel and just wrote some lyrics to it. Um, and then that was that song. And then I just decided, and at, at this point I'm in the mid 1800s. And then I decided I would write a song about a woman coming from Ireland and meeting this riverboat gambler, uh, leaving in the 1840s because of the potato famine and going on a, um, what was called a coffin ship because not all the immigrants from Ireland would make the, the crossing of the Atlantic. Uh, anyway, and that's how this whole thing started. And after a while I realized that this is developing into a story. Uh, and then I wrote a song about the general, which is this, uh, there was this hijacking of a train. I think it was in 1862, if I remember correctly, uh, union spies hijacked a Confederate train and they were headed north up to Northern Georgia to uh, tie up railroad tracks and uh, you know, rip up railroad tracks and cut down telegraph wires uh, to allow for uh, an attack by a Union general. And it just went on from there. And uh, I could give you more details, but that, that kind of sets the, sets the story, uh, at least in a little bit. I was trying to have a through story where these characters would appear throughout. Um, and I was very fortunate, I guess I'll just continue here since I have the floor. Uh, I was. I wanted to have some aspect of enslaved Africans uh, as part of the story, and I happened to be visiting some friends in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and the husband was a um, and still is a history professor at Warren Wilson College, where the Swan and Oak Gathering happens every year, uh, although virtually this year. And um, he said that he and his students had been clearing this slave graveyard on the outskirts of Asheville. And would I like to see it the next morning? And I said, of course, I would love to see it. And we went out there and it was just this very powerful experience. It was behind this small church and there was just this open space with mostly just rocks, just stones on the ground. And it turned out that that's, uh, there was a, a gentleman named George Avery who was a, a grave digger for this plantation uh, in that area at that time in the 18. 50s, 1840s, 1850s, into the 1860s. And when enslaved Afri Africans on this plantation died, they'd be put in a wicker basket and buried under the ground. And a stone would be put over their head with no inscription, just a stone. Someone's buried here, that sort of thing. And uh, this history professor did a seismographic reading and discovered that there were 1,900 souls buried under the ground. And anyway, I could go on, but uh, it was a very powerful experience. And I ended up writing 
actually a total of three songs based on this gentleman, George Avery. I changed his name to John Boston, who was another enslaved African, just to, I conflated the two personalities to create the story. But um, anyway, that was the genesis of that part of the story. Have you, do you write stories, just non-musical stories, just for yourself? Uh, First (laughs) for you a little bit. Of this sort of thing and this expansive thing, it was the first thing I, I wrote. I've written one short story in my life, which was many, many years ago. My father and I had driven down to Florida to visit my sister who was living there. And we ate at a Denny's and waited an hour to be served and get our food. And I was so frustrated that I wrote a short story about it. Um, I don't think it'll ever see the light of day, needless to say. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> And you use a lot of uh, different banjos. It's not a banjo album, I would say, um, but it is used in a number of different banjo sounds on this on this recording. Um, what were some of the different banjos that you used? Uh, well, let's see. I use this one right here. This is my signature model, Golden Clipper. And for the bluegrass-oriented tunes, I use this. Mm-hmm. And I also use this one here, which is a Vega, but Deering bought the Vega company because Vega, I think they were, well, first it was Vega out in Boston, like in the early 1900s. So they were bought by the Martin Guitar Company. And then they sold it to someone in Korea who really didn't know what they were doing with the banjos and didn't do a very good job, apparently. And then Greg and Janet Deering bought, bought it from the Korean company. And... Uh, started making really nice Vega banjos again. So it's a Deering Vega, basically. And it's nylon strong, so it has kind of a sweet sound to it. Um, do you wanna, yeah. While you have that banjo in hand, do you want to play play a tune with it since we're here? Yeah. You set this up perfectly, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was, um, it's tough because I, I, I'm not a singer and I won't bludgeon you with my voice, any of you folks. But uh, there's only one instrumental on the album. I decided I wanted to write a Civil War sounding march. And I listened to a bunch of reenactment reenactors. Uh, and there are all these marches you can find on YouTube of, uh, you know, these brass bands doing, you know, the music's written out from that time period. And I listened to a bunch of those and then just sat down and wrote something in the spirit of those tunes. Uh which I call the Big Round Top March, which is a location at the in Gettysburg, uh, at the, the battlefield, the Big Round Top. And so that's how I named this. And I was fortunate enough, besides playing this banjo, I got a gentleman named Van Dyke Parks uh, out in L.A., who is uh, one of my big culture heroes. He put out an amazing album in 1967, I want to say, called Song Cycle. And uh, if you're familiar with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, he put out, they put out an they were supposed to put out an album called Smile, and Van Dyke had written all the lyrics for it. It was a very visionary thing, competing with the Beatles. Um, but it never came out till more recent years. But anyway, uh, I got Van Dyke Parks to uh, write an arrangement for a, um, a whole brass band, basically, which you will not hear right now. You'll just hear the banjo part, but the whole brass band <laughs> on the album. Here we go. Thank you. 
Thank you. And I'm curious about your, like the, cause I, with the brass band orchestration, how your, how the process went for you getting the music to, to Van Dyke, did you record a, a scratch track of, of the tune and then he, and then he composed the music for it or how'd that go about come about? That's how it worked out. I just, I, I played exactly this uh, on my phone, just very mm -hmm. loose and just send it to him. And he came out with this remarkable uh, piece of music. Again, I think it was an eight piece band, mostly horns. And uh, there's some flute, some piccolo and a bass drum uh, and a snare drum. And Van Dyke is just, he's a very amazing, quirky, deep musician. And he likes Calypso music. So in the middle of his arrangement, there are a few moments where you hear this Calypso feel which is totally anachronistic because that was not happening in 1863. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just like, wait, what, what? But in doing this album, I was not trying to write in the style of that time. This is the only thing that's really kind of in the style of that. Maybe, there's one other tune that is also maybe two tunes out of all of them. Uh, but I was just kind of writing however I felt the music should be for that particular kind of a tune. And there, there are two tunes that have string quartet arrangements with them that a friend of mine um, put together, got in Greg Pliska. So it's uh, it's a very eclectic album, to say the least. Yeah, because well, so, there's all these different orchestration throughout it. And, and kind of going back to the recording process, you so they they would they would send you a um, like a, a finale you know a MIDI sample of the orchestrated parts, and then you'd approve it, and then you hire the musicians and record that. Is that what happened? Well, actually, um, it's a gentleman named Greg Pliska. I, I did this thing in Central Park with the, with the public theater. It's called Shakespeare in the Park, and there's a version of As You Like It by Shakespeare. They do this every summer. It's a free series. And Steve Martin uh, had written some of the music for it, and it asked me to put a band together for that. But the incidental music was done by a guy named this guy Greg Pliska, who's an amazing orchestrator and arranger. And I became friendly with him. So when it came time to, I decided I want to have string quartet arrangements for two of the tunes. So I just got together with him because he lives in New York city and I'm close by. So I would go and play the music for him and we would kick some ideas around then. Yeah. And then he would send me a MIDI file and I would listen to it and say, yeah, that sounds great. Or let's change this. Mostly it was all great. Uh, he did a, just a remarkable job. And then he, he contracted out the musicians. So I just put it all in his hands and he handled the whole thing. And he, you know, he handled these, they got these amazing, you know, classical musicians, two violinists, a cello and a, and a viola. Uh, and they just sat down and nailed it in, you know, half an hour. It just sounded perfect with all the emotion. And, you know, so. And do they, do they play to your banjo track or you, or do you play to their track? I played to their track. There was a click track, so it would just be them. And then I overdubbed my part to go with them. And gotcha. it's just the simplest way to do it. Just so, so we would have to wait for, for me to make sure mine was right. And, you know, let's just get them done first. But yeah, that's exactly yep. how it happened. Yeah. Okay. And Perfect. I know this, this recording took you a number of years to complete, um, but you, you, you persevered and, and completed it, which is really admirable. Um, how, how, what kind of advice do you have for artists that are you know, str struggling to complete a work like this and they're just kind of stuck in a spot and it's not finishing, but not just throwing it away and moving on. 
Yeah, I mean, if you believe in it, I mean, for me, it was partly I'd spent so many years at it. And this isn't like every day working eight hours a day for 12 years. It was, you know, I had other projects I'd go on the road. But um, for me, what worked, and this is more of a, I hate to call it a concept album, but it tells a story and uh, and has characters that that uh, occur throughout the story. And for me, I love history. And so it fascinated me to be researching these tunes. So my interest kept expanding. As I said, when I went to that enslaved graveyard, it was the whole thing just opened up. I, I, there, it gave me three new tunes, basically, you know, inspired me to write three new tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which I only found the lyrics for, but that's another story. Uh, to, to stay in, I guess to stay inspired, it depends on what the project is. For me, it was a historically based thing. And like I said, I love history. So I would research things. One of the, uh, one of the other major things was um, while I was researching, I found this uh, on YouTube. I found a reunion in 1938, the 75th reunion of soldiers who had survived the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's this old video. Again, and, uh, they met in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And these are soldiers on both the Union and Confederate sides, and they show up, these gentlemen who are like in their late 80s, early, mid-90s, they're getting off a tree, getting off a train and hobbling along in canes or on a wheelchair. Uh, And then you see them shaking hands across this stone wall at the Gettysburg battlefield that they had fought over 70 years before, shaking hands. And it was just not that their attitudes had changed, but they're in their 90s, and here they are healing. It's a healing moment. And that became a very important part of the story for me. And then, as it turns out, in this day and age where we're so divided uh, that we can still respect each other. And even if we have different opinions, we can still respect each other for who we are. And that kind of became an unintentional theme, but kind of, you know, for the present time, it seems appropriate. I guess I should say that, you know, I'm not trying to... Mm -hmm on the soapbox and make a statement but it just by happen chance worked out that way and i also happened i wrote a i wanted to write a christmas tune based on how christmases were spent in the civil war and it was a day where there was no fighting at least in this particular thing that i was researching and people would be playing games in this encampment um but it was uh christmas cheer this weary year because the year before these people had been home with their families and now uh, it's certainly not that way. They're at war. But the general idea of Christmas cheer this weary year, which given the pandemic, a lot of families couldn't get together. So, again, surely by happenstance, it seemed to have a resonance. Uh, and we did a video on that also, which you can find on YouTube somewhere, I'm sure. Very apropos, yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk a little about the banjo you're holding. Um, what kind it's nylon strings it has on there right it's nylon strung yeah it has this um uh, jens kruger developed this thing right here which I, I can't even explain exactly how it works but it adds a lot of sustain to the instrument it doesn't have quite the volume but it has tons of sustain and it's just a gorgeous sound um Maybe I'll play one more tune on this, if you don't mind, with your sure. permission. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's see if I can get through this. 
I started writing a lot of banjo tunes during the pandemic when things first started a year ago, and still am for that matter. And this is one of them, it's kind of in a, the style of a turn of the century parlor tune. And it doesn't have a name yet, but let's see. tuning was that was that drop c that you went to that's drop c tuning yes it's like a g tuning but with a four string tuned down to c and for this tune i decided i would grab some um techniques that they use for that style of music the parlor style the very first edison cylinders featured banjo music playing in this style and um one thing that they would do a lot is have triplet feels like one thing and then there's another thing where they would go kind of hitting two strings having one note staying the same while the others change well like the second string changes um, if I can remember this tune This online banjo school, and I have a tune in there if I can think of it. I can't remember now, but it's a tune from like the 1920s, and it's in that kind of have a melody here, and then it goes down. In fact, I'll play it. Can I play one more tune? Yeah, go ahead. Let me just turn off my my tweet thing here. Okay. Um, it's called the Plantation Symphony. And this was what was going on in 1902, let's say. This is a tune from then. And it has a little bit, little bit of the melodic style in it. Again, kind of the smoking gun showing that melodic style was being done much earlier uh, than we thought.
you get the idea. But this is here, where it almost sounds like two banjos, and that was the idea. They would sometimes try to do things that sounded like two banjos. So you're hitting the third string with a thumb, and then going back and forth between the index and middle on the first string. Yeah, it. Uh, but I, I noticed it had a lot of chord melody sort of structure to it, um, and then, uh, but then that 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 technique you just showed that that reminds me of like a classical guitar kind of uh, thing, uh, fingering right hand thing to kind yeah, of do yeah. the, 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 you know, one string with two fingers back. Yeah, this style of music would would borrow it would what they would be playing on these banjos, these five string banjos, they'd be doing marches like classical, like classical music and rags. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was definitely, and in fact, this banjo instruction book from 1865, uh, before that, at least in books, people were doing what we today call claw hammer, downstroke style. But in 1865, this book, midway through the book, they talk about the guitar style, they called it guitar style. And it was a finger picking style. And uh, so they were definitely borrowing from the guitar. In fact, the tune I wrote that I played earlier, the very beginning, I happened to be checking out an Andres Segovia masterclass on YouTube. And he talks about hitting the third string and then pinching the first two strings. And I wanted an introduction to this tune. And I saw that, oh my gosh, I'm going to steal that from Andres Segovia and put it in this tune. But this business is st stolen directly from classical guitar, uh, which is where I got the idea for that. There's somebody asking in the chat why you aren't using finger picks on this banjo. Uh, because at least, well, again, the first tune I played, the tune for the March was from 1865, you know, in that style. And they didn't use finger picks there. And they didn't use finger picks uh, in the turn of the century music. And finger picks probably didn't come until like the, the later 20s or mid to later 30s, you know. Uh, although in the downstroke style, just to get historical for a second, this book from 1865 where it talked about that guitar style in that same book, um, they had an outline of a, of a pick that you would use for the downstroke style that you could put on your index finger. So at least as early as 1865, there were finger picks or a finger pick for your index finger to hit down with to get more power um, but anyway this turn of the century style which I really love and play a number of tunes in that style they didn't use finger picks it was just bare fingers and it's really nice to just have bare fingers and touch with strings uh, for this kind of a banjo the nylon strung as opposed to this banjo where it's nice to be able to you know punch out the sound with finger picks so that's why, because I'm playing in a style where they did not use originally use finger picks. And quickly before we leave, the nylon string banjo is. Are you what strings are you using on there? You know, I the, the, believe it or not, these are the strings that came with it. So you can ask Janet and Greg what what they put on this. So I, I honestly don't know. I don't know the company, and they I've and I've had this for like seven years or something, and they're still holding up just fine. So. 
I believe it's Aquila um, Nile gut strings, but I'm not 100% sure. Oh, okay. Do you folks carry those? We don't have them in stock right now, but we're, we're working on order five pairs. So when, when, maybe we can, the phone conversation. We, we, we can make that happen, Tony. Sorry. Yeah. We'll make that happen for you. They, they are Aquila and I've got strings. We use them on the, uh, the ukuleles, uh, the okay. ukuleles that we make. So yeah, those are, those are our go-to nylon strings. Um, oh, good. Good. Yeah. I can use yeah. a couple pairs. Though, so. Yeah. All right. My All right. Dealing and dealing live on air. I'm, I'm leaving. My credit card number is uh, three two seven. Oh, no, no, no. Just write it in a song and we'll get it. We'll I was just going to say, can you please put that into some kind of melody so we can all try and try to interpret your credit card details, and then uh, of course, absolutely, <laughs> the winner can spend whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. The expiration date is. There you go. <laughs> Do you want to play uh, play a tune on on the on the steel? on the steel, the, the right, you know, the more classic, the bluegrass style banjo that we have. And so then people can hear the difference, right? You know, A, B, and I could do something that I'm a little nervous about playing. Cause I don't know if I can get through the whole thing, but if that's okay, if I have a train wreck, that's okay. It's all right. If I have a train wreck, we all make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> this is, um, this is an arrangement of, uh, I, I did a show with Mark O'Connor. Uh, it was me and Mark O'Connor. Uh, else was on Jay and Molly Unger, uh, Jimmy Gaudreau, Mike Aldridge. And we were all playing solo except for Jay and Molly. And uh, we all played what we played. And it was a nice audience, full audience. And Mark went out and played this partita that he had composed and was just blowing people away with this amazing, amazing technique. He was playing beautifully. And I decided I should have something that's more of a show, showy kind of a tune to fulfill that function when I do a solo show. And I decided to do variations on um, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But uh, it never, it never became too flashy. So, but this is my rendition of that. I think Gun and Mozart did the same thing a few years before I did it though. So anyway, here we go.
Okay, now I can breathe. <laughs> Fantastic. How do you how do you remember all these tunes that you that you play? Because you, you you play in you know a lot of different styles and and do you just keep working dust them off every day, or how do you keep them all from just kind of fading and getting Don't dusty? Ask me that question. That's the most dangerous thing that happens to me when I do solo shows. Sometimes I'm in the midst of playing something like this, and I think, how do I remember all this? And that's <laughs> really going to get a train wreck. Uh, you know, some certain like this, I need to kind of warm up on a little bit. You know, I, I've played it a lot just to keep it in my fingers, and I would use it a lot as a warm up exercise before I do various things. Um, and I played it a couple of times just you know earlier today, just to re as a refresher. Uh, and then there are other tunes like that, uh, that Plantation Symphony tune from 1902 that it's just in there. I didn't warm up on that, and you know I missed one thing or something, but you know. There's certain, certain things I played enough and they just kind of stick in your head. Mm -hmm. And that Elvin Monroe tune um, is one of my all-time favorite tunes. So, <clears throat> And it was an interesting story. Uh, this was 1966 and I was living in Syracuse, New York. I was 17 at the time. And um, we had been at the 1966, uh, the second bluegrass, the second three-day festival, bluegrass festival ever in Fincastle, Virginia. And um, we were friendly with Pete Rowan who was playing with uh, Bill Monroe at the time, and it turns out they were going to be in Rochester, New York. So our guitar player asked Pete Rowan to ask Bill Monroe if he would come for dinner at our guitar player's parents' house before the show. And Bill Monroe agreed. So we get to the our guitar player's parents' house, and there's the bluegrass bus out in front with the Tennessee plates and uh, two steer horns on the front, one of which was broken off. <clears throat> and we go in there, and there's Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys, in our guitar player's parents' house, all dressed up in suits and ties. And we had a chance to play with Bill just before uh, dinner, played a couple of tunes with him. And then he was drinking a little bit of red wine, a glass of red wine, and talked about how he had a hound, hound dog when he was living in uh, Chicago in the 30s with his brothers. Uh, he had a hound dog that could trace the scent of a rabbit through the streets of Chicago if the scent was three weeks old. Uh, he told that story. And then we had dinner. And then afterwards, Bill said, would you like it? Would you like us to play for you? And we said, nah, don't bother. No, we said, uh, yeah, that'd be nice. And Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys in our guitar player's parents' living room uh, stood and played requests for about 20 minutes while we just sat on the living room couch. And one of the songs they played was that Crossing the Cumberlands. And then we got to ride over to the gig in the, in the Bluegrass bus. And uh, the guitar, the banjo player, Lamar Greer, as I mentioned earlier, he was the bus driver. It's always the band uh, banjo player who's the bus driver. And he's in the middle of this major downtown street. And they made a wrong turn. So we had to do a U-turn in the Bluegrass bus, the Bluegrass Breakdown, as they used to call it, uh, and head off to the gig. And then the gig was amazing also. Richard Green was playing fiddle at that time. And it was just an amazing band, amazing band. So those, That's a fantastic story. One of those life-changing moments. Yeah. It's, uh, why is why is the banjo player always the the bus driver? In, I, I don't know. I, well, Bill Monroe uh, used to call the banjo the fifth child. In fact, his one of his banjo players, Butch <laughs> Robbins, great banjo player, had an album called The Fifth Child. And apparently, because when Bill Monroe started the Bluegrass Boys in around 1938, went on the Grand Ole Opry doing Mule Skinner Blues, and it was fiddle, guitar, mandolin, and bass. There was no banjo, and 
1942, he had a four-string banjo player playing with him. And then apparently, again, in 1944, I think just before Earl Scruggs joined, and a little before that string bean, Dave Aikman was playing five-string banjo, more some two-finger and maybe some claw hammer also. But Bill Monroe actually did have two different four-string banjo player players with him at one time in the 40s. I'd love to have heard what that was. But, wow. It was There's no recordings of that. There probably are. I think like the Country Music Hall of Fame or the Opry has all that. You know, there are recordings from the 40s you can hear. So I would really be curious to hear that myself. Was it a tenor banjo or a plectrum? Do you know? I'm not sure. I'm not sure yeah. which it was. I'm guessing tenor, but I don't really know for a fact. Yeah. For a fact. But I should probably play an Earl Scruggs thing, shouldn't I? Would that be appropriate? Sure. Go ahead. I mean, I've got this bluegrass banjo here, so... Um, I had a chance to hang out with Earl on a number of occasions. Uh, and uh, one story he told me was that he... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, Banjo Man or something like that. It was a documentary about Earl Scruggs and paired him with or connected him with various people, including Bob Dylan, uh, uh, Earl played Nashville Skyline Rag with Bob Dylan on this film and got together with the birds with Clarence White on electric guitar. And um, they were getting these various people to play with Earl. And one of the, one time Earl told me that Ravi Shankar was in Nashville doing a concert and they tried to get a film crew together to film Earl and Ravi Shankar playing together, sitar and banjo. And uh, Ravi came over to Earl's house along with his tabla player, Ala Raka. And they jammed for a while. They couldn't get the film crew, but they jammed. Earl said they jammed for a while. And then afterwards, Earl said, would you like to eat something? And all Robbie Shankar wanted to have was Kentucky Fried Chicken. So they ordered some tubs of flan, and mashed potatoes and, and chicken and sat on the floor and ate, ate, ate KFC. But I sure would like to have been a fly on the wall to hear what that sounded like. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, so I'll, I'll play... Uh, I'll play two tunes in dropsy tuning again. Uh, one of which is something that Earl never officially re recorded, although it ended up on the live at Carnegie Hall show, the full extended version with everything on it, which you can still get. And uh, it's called You Can't Can't Stop Me From Dreaming. And it's one of the two tunes he would play along with Darling Palomine that he would play with Jake Tullock, the bass player for Flat and Scruggs. And they would do it as a bass, ban bass banjo duet. And um, anyway, I'll play that. Maybe I'll play one other tune after that. But listen, I'll play a little bit of um, You Can't Stop Me From Dreaming.
And the coolest thing about that first tune, Can't Stop Me From Dreaming, Earl goes at the end. Uh, which is the craziest ending I've ever heard. And uh, if you go to, um, it's one of the Martha White videos that you can find on YouTube. And they do that there. It's the earliest, one of the earliest videos. And they have these really cool white suits on. And it's just it's just Earl and Cousin Jake playing bass and banjo. And at the end, Earl ended it like that. And that's the weirdest ending. And then I started thinking, why did he do that? And I realized it's like the bass goes root five, root five. And Earl was just imitating that on the banjo. Coolest thing. This is... Why, why, sometimes you're playing in drop C, why, if you're composing a tune or deciding to play in drop C, why would you um, use drop C possibly instead of double C or another C tuning? And there's full C, well, there's drop C, there's double C, and then full C. Drop C is just the fourth string down to C. Uh, double C is second string up to C, and then sometimes... First string up to E, but I'm not going to mess with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never be in tune again. But um, this double C, which is really one of my favorite tunes, and I might get lucky and be able to play something if we have time in double C, which is just a beautiful tuning to play out of. Are there any questions, by the way, out there? You do have somebody asking about some. I saw him quickly talking about. Are there Tony Trishka socks out there? I'm not wearing them now. I'm not. Uh, there have been on my website. You can. There's a link. We we started a store recently, which has been taken over by someone else. But I think there's still maybe some socks there. Some banjo socks. Yes, they're amazing. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing socks. I think that they're actually a very good sock. Not, not that I'm here to shill socks, but sure, they're sure, socks. dirty, and I haven't worn them out, and I go through socks pretty quickly. But these, they last, and they're very comfortable, too. To be clear, though, they're, they're new socks. They're not your socks, right? Well, they're, I like weird socks. I like fancy socks. And so at one point I said, i got to get some socks you know, to sell at gigs. And so uh, my wife was the organizational genius behind it and, and found a really good company. She's good at researching these things and found a company that made really good socks. And we asked her to sample a pair and they sent two different unmatching socks. Why would they do that? But anyway, and uh, so anyway, yes, I've, I've carried socks. I'm into haberdashery these days. T-shirts are nice, but socks are better, I think, personally. <laughs> I, I didn't jump in there to talk about socks real quick before you start the the tune. Um, we did have a, we have another chat room and, and um, uh, Michael is asking about just very quickly on the on the nylon strings. Do you recommend them for claw hammer, and are they hard to get used to if you've been playing steel strings for so long? What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, for claw hammer, I mean, it depends on the. I would say. I've not tried claw hammer. I mean, I just did for a moment, I think. But um, I guess, you know, I haven't, I'm not that not that up on nylon strings, but I would think you can get different gauges. You guys might know more about this than I do. I mean, are there heavy gauge nylon strings? Or if you're going to do something like claw hammer, you might want a slightly heavier gauge, I would think. Yeah. You can do it. You might have to just hit it a little bit more lightly. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's just a different thing. It's a whole other realm. I mean, I know when I many, many years ago, uh, I always played with picks and I would go over and visit Bill Keith up in Woodstock, New York, and we'd hang out and he'd play something without picks. You know, just play some tune on his regular bluegrass banjo, steel string banjo without picks. And then I would try it at home and it just felt awkward to me. And it took a while to get used to not using picks yeah. uh, on a regular bluegrass banjo, let's say. But on an Allen strung banjo, I mean, I've been doing it for so long. I think it takes a little while to get used to because there's more give. They don't resist. That's quite. right. The, the tension is not quite as great as a steel string. So it just it feels yeah. weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you go from, a, from an acoustic guitar onto a classical guitar. It just it's very takes a little bit of uh, of getting used to it, yeah. Right, yeah, you don't quite get that resistance, but it's uh, it's a wonderful sound. It's just a different flavor. Uh, so you don't always have to be playing metal strings, and, you know, it gives you a headache after a while. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a really pretty sound. I mean, you can just do all sorts of nice things. Maybe I'll – can I play one more thing on the nylon strung? You can. You can. I didn't want to interrupt you. But no, while you're doing that, uh, Spooky Tooth ninety two says, "I want more Tony Trishka underwear." Ever since my Trishka G string came in, I'm a way better banjo player. On that <laughs> note, I'm going to duck out of this and let Dave carry on. <laughs> I'm going to play Tootsie right now. And anyway, uh, <laughs> well, there was a group out of Pennsylvania that used to—I can't remember the name of the group right now—but they had bluegrass underwear, and it said, "I'm bluegrass proud for men and women." Briefs and uh, and panties. Uh, and they actually, this was like in the eighties. They sold these at gigs. So that's that's the band you need to talk to. You talk to those folks. Well, the thing about these different instruments is you can get it can inspire you to do all sorts of different things. So again, I wrote a tune on this banjo uh, for my daughter Zoe. I, can, I haven't played this in a while. Let me see if I can do this cold. Talking about memorizing tunes. This is drop C. And it's just, it's a really pretty sound, you know, with nylon strings. And, well, I'll get into that topic in a moment, but I'll play a little bit of this song, Zoe.
Nice. That's, that's a beautiful tune. It really is. Thanks. And, and one thing for folks to think about is rather than always being right next to the bridge, you can move. And, and that is one thing in terms of uh, the, the person that asked about nylon strings versus metal strings and making the transition. If you play close to the bridge, you will get pretty good resistance when you get out here, which is true of a, uh, you know, a steel string banjo also, there's more give. But, but in general, there's, you, know, you, you can get a fairly good resistance if you're close to the bridge. Uh, so, so I don't think it's that big a, big a difference, but there is obviously some difference. Um, but I, I, what I wanted to say is there's a whole lot of tonal timbral range difference between here and here, which you can hear better on the on this banjo. And so, again, with my online school, I'm often talking to people about take advantage of all that sound differential you can get when you're close to the bridge. Take advantage of everything that you've got here and just feel it out. There are no rules to it, except when you're doing bluegrass backup. You know, you might want to move away from the bridge to get a, a sweeter sound. Earl would do that. He wouldn't always be back here. So anyway, those are my thoughts on that. That's good advice. Um, we are at the top of the hour, but we are starting to get a number of questions coming in. So do you want to try to get to a number of these? Um, um, sure. We have... Uh, one question is, I'm quite familiar with the first five frets, but I find, have a lot of trouble playing in the upper notes of the fretboard. Do you have any recommendations on how to, how to tackle learning that stuff? Um, it's a big topic. Um, there, are, there are a number of what, a number of ways to look at this. One way is if you there aren't that many up-the-neck breaks. I mean, Foggy Mountain Breakdown in the Earl Scruggs book has up-the-neck breaks. Um, and uh, I hate to mention my school because I don't want to be just plugging it, but I do have some, if someone's on the school, I've got some up-the-neck breaks there. And you can just learn those and get a sense of that. But in a larger sense, um, if you just play the syllables of a tune, rather than trying to figure out what's going on up here and I don't know where the licks are. You don't worry about licks, you play the melody of the tune. Uh, so if you're playing You Are My Sunshine, for instance. something that John Hartford used to talk about Earl doing. Earl would play the syllables of a tune. He would do something like Country Roads. Um, that's almost completely playing it the way you would sing it. Playing the syllables of a song rather than sort of playing the melody, playing as close as you can to the way it would actually be sung, phrased. So you're playing the lyrics of the song. So if you take that concept up here, I mean, it's good to know some chords up the neck. Here's the D position, G. 
here's the F position C, D position, uh, the F position D, I'm sorry. And knowing that this is the bar G, and here's C up here. I mean, if you know a couple of the chord positions up here, you can work out of them. Um, like country, if you're just working out of this D position G, find the melody notes, starts on the that note here, the G, like country roads, one, two, three, the first, second, and third notes of the scale, country roads, take the, and here's a D chord here, you should know what the chords of the tune are, take the, I'm taking, here's a bar D chord at the seventh fret, I take the first two strings out of that, which is what Earl would do a lot of the times playing up the neck, he wouldn't use all four strings. He would often work off just the first, second, and fifth strings. So, take the melody notes on the first string here at the top. Uh, first two strings at the seventh fret. See. That's an E minor chord. Just if, if you played Foggy Mountain Breakdown, you might know this position for you. To the place. I B back to G. And here's a G up here. The melody I B long. And here's a C. Lots of times you can find nice melodies on just fretting the second string. You can also go all on the second string. Eight, ten, and twelve, and open first, second, and fifth strings. And do some forward rolls. Maybe a C there. Again, working out of this D chord position, D position G, going from the ninth to the seventh fret of the first string to the second string, eighth fret. Using the middle finger as an anchor on the second string, eighth fret. I don't know if that's helping this, you know, without really writing out the tablature and spending a lot of time just in a really quick moment that hopefully gives some sense of how to work up the neck. And also you can use sixths. Um, the interval of a sixth, if you learn those, that really helps to connect things up the neck, up and down the neck. If you take the first string, a third string open, and the first string second fret, one, two, three, four, five, six, that's the interval of a sixth, starting with the open third, counting that as one, one, two, three, four, five, six, going up the notes of the G scale, that interval is a sixth. Now, if you start on the second note of the G scale, playing notes of the G scale, and continuing on from there, you get zero and two, Two and four. This is only on the third and first strings. Four and five. Five and seven. Seven and nine. A lot of this you can just discover by ear. Nine and ten. Eleven and twelve. Twelve and fourteen. Fourteen, sixteen. Sixteen, seventeen. Seventeen, nineteen. I can't count this high. Nineteen and twenty-one. And then I happen to have, because this is a fancy pants banjo, it has two extra frets. So I go all the way up to there, up an octave. But using these sixths and using rolls, kind of backward, forward rolls with the fifth string, first, third, fifth, third, first, third, fifth.
That's sort of a vague version of Country Roads. Country Roads with a melody note on the first string of the sixth. few ideas about playing up the neck. It's a lot of good information there. Really good ideas um, for people with a, a play, any playing level. Um, uh, here we have a question from Shannon O'Hare saying, I use your artist work series as the, the um, series you've mentioned. If you, uh, and uh, it's amazing, but was curious how you feel about online banjo camps like the upcoming New Mexico banjo camp and what current end what current bands do you listen to? Huh. Uh, well, thank you, Shannon, for that question. I've not done a banjo camp yet. I've done these sorts of things. Uh, I've not actually done a banjo camp. The New Mexico one will be the first one. So I can't even really speak from experience. I've done workshops. I did one last week with the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. Uh, I think they work. And as here, as in here, you can, you can ask questions. Uh, I find it a little bit strange where you just see people blocks of people and they're muted and they're just these little blocks in the distance i really like human interaction i love just working with a bunch of folks in person but of course we can't do that these days uh but i mean it does work and what i've done with the i'm sure i'll be doing this with bell evans too sending him tablature which he will send out to everyone so they'll have the tablature in advance to look through and then i'll i'll describe you know whatever i'm going to teach i'll talk about that as it relates to the tablature so I think it's it does work. Uh, just having done a three-hour workshop, and this is a more extended sort of thing, of course, uh, it does work. But it's not as groovy as some people used to say in the '60s as doing it in person. But yeah, I think I think it does work. And what was the other part of the question? I'm sorry, there was. Uh, what bands are you listening to? Wow, um, you know, I honestly, if if you're talking about bluegrass bands. Uh, I don't listen to that much bluegrass because I listened for so many years, but I still do. And if I do, it'll be Billman or it'll be the older bands. Uh, there are a lot of great bands out there, you know, modern bands. But I just for me, it just I have such an attachment to the older bands. And I got to see these people in person and uh, it just res still resonates very deeply in me. I, you know, I listen to Billman or I listen to Flan Scruggs, Jim and Jesse. I've been listening to recently the Osborne Brothers. Jimmy Martin I listened to recently he has a great song called I Can't Quit Cigarettes that starts off with somebody coughing very strongly. It's a great song. Look up Jimmy Martin, I Can't Quit Cigarettes. It'll change your life, sort of. Uh, and the Osborne Brothers, Sonny, I, I've, I've been in touch with Sonny somewhat recently. He's one of my big banjo heroes. and uh, he's, a, he's a really great guy. I love Sonny's, Sonny's music. In fact, he's putting together an album he's been for the last number of years called Ego, and it's he's gotten because he's not playing anymore because he had a rotator cuff in this uh, injury, but he's gotten various people together to record tunes he wrote or tunes that have, you know famous solos that he's taken like Rocky Top. And uh, I went down there, went to Nashville, I don't know, three years ago or something, and Bela and Allison Brown and I each did a couple of tunes of Sonny's. And I don't know if this will ever come out. I haven't heard anything more about it, but. Um, Sonny is still one of my giant banjo heroes. You know, he could play just like Earl, or he he could play some really out stuff. He had a six string banjo once with an extra six, an extra fifth string up here, tuned down to a low G, 
And I actually had a neck made for me that did that for, I had it for about a week, but every t- time I hit the third string, the low string would, would resonate. And I decided against doing that. So, but, um, and those are, that's what I listen to bluegrass wise. Otherwise it's all over the map. I love David Crosby, uh, his music, uh, listen to the doors yesterday for old time's sake, always the Beatles, always Bob Dylan. I, I'm an old coop, you know, that's who I listen to. I listened to Aaron Copeland today. One of my huge and favorite influences, Aaron Copeland. So I listen to his music a lot to this day. So those are some of the things I listen to. Jamie, do do we have any questions on the on the other chat line coming in? Yeah, I do have a couple. And then I'm telling you, I know uh, we'll probably uh, probably start wrapping here. But uh, thank you. Your answers have been so helpful, uh, and uh, thank you for your time today. But um, uh, Alan asks. I'm curious to know if there are any particular compositions from Tony's earlier career, uh, Skyline and pre-Skyline, uh, that he still enjoys playing and which he is or might be particularly proud of. Huh, that's interesting. Great question. Uh, there's one tune that is on my first album called The Jig Is Up, and it's in 7-4 time. Uh, I was listening to a lot of jazz back then. This would have been 1973 when I wrote it. I think my first album, Bluegrass Light, came out in 74. Uh, you can find it on if you go to the um, you know Apple Music or Spotify. It's it's, uh, it's a double album basically on CD or streaming now called The Early Years. You know you're getting old when you have something called The Early Years. But um, it's a tune on my first album called uh, The Jig Is Up, and I've been listening to a guy named Don Ellis who was a big band leader who would uh, write these arrangements in crazy time signatures. Seven four is not that crazy, but he'd have thirteen eight or things like that. Wow. Uh, but I listened to that and then drove home after a gig, put on the record, and at about five in the morning started writing this tune. Let me see if I can just do it cold. Speaking of memory, this is something I've played in a long time. So this is in seven four time. That's awesome. Thank you, Tony. Um, and then the, the last one, I think, from my end, um, being asked, uh, do you have any, this is Bill. Bill asks, can you comment on miking and recording? Um, struggling. What recording? Uh, miking and recording. Oh, miking uh, and recording. Yeah, any, any kind of, uh, I guess, uh, interim advice for, for people trying to get a semi-decent sound? This is going to sound real, well, for one thing, don't have the mic aimed right at your right hand because then you're going to hear a lot of pick noise. So that's one thing I suggest. Uh, there are all sorts of strategies. I don't have any one way of doing it. I have to say for this album, Shall We Hope, my latest album, I have the engineer, my favorite engineer of all time, uh, who just 
just nailed the sound. Lawson White is his name, and he unfortunately moved from Brooklyn because I live in New Jersey, so it was easy to get to him. Now he's moved to Nashville, like they don't have enough engineers there already. But anyway, <laughs> he would use four mics. He mic'd me with four mics. Just about every song on that album, there were four mics. Wow. And I don't remember the exact. He had like one over over the neck here, one down here, and maybe one out a little ways. But he had one off to the side over here, interestingly enough. Huh. And, and he just... And the sound, it's the best sound I've ever gotten on an album. So kind of kind of parallel with the end of the banjo or slightly behind it or slightly in front of it? it just, no, I think maybe just slightly in front of it, but really okay. off to the side, maybe just slightly in front, but just barely. Cool. And it worked. I mean, I don't know. He's, he's just an incredible engineer. And it's, like I say, it's the best recorded sound I've ever gotten. If you're just using one mic, again, I would avoid the right hand uh, yeah. and have it. You know, off to one side or a little below. You just because you really pick noise is the is the downfall. You know, when you hear all that clacking, you, know, you really don't want that. So, yeah. In a nutshell, that's just a really quick thing. But there are all sorts of different strategies. I did that when I was doing a session in New York City many years ago for some commercial or something. Uh, the engineer, uh, this woman put, she was the engineer, and she put a mic up here. You can see my hand there, but like way up here far from the banjo and I went I wasn't going to say anything because it was her studio she was the engineer and, and she got a great sound and it was way up here so kind of depends on the room and there are all sorts of things but yeah I don't know that there's any one answer but if you're using one mic with the right hand you know yeah so you're not very cool yeah. awesome um, Dave how you doing yeah I just I just do have one quick question I'm curious are you starting to book live shows this year or uh there are a couple of things i'm doing rocky grass out in uh, Lyons, colorado that's happening awesome. uh i'm doing i've got a couple of gigs i'm doing a couple of things with bruce malski uh with outdoor audiences so it's it's beginning to happen i've gotten my second shot so uh, i've had my two moderna shots so i'm feeling a little less apprehensive about travel sure. and doing gigs so it's starting to starting to open up anyway i think the most important question of the day we talked about this right before we went live though tony is will the beard continue to grow uh after we all go back to normal or, or once we go back to playing with people is it coming off like like Baylor? i i don't know you know it's a hard question uh yes a year ago this past march my son said dad why don't you grow your beard long you know i had i had a beard i've had it for years but you know it was pretty short and I said, I got nothing better to do. It kept me occupied anyway. <clears throat> it kept me from getting bored, just grow the beard. I've trimmed it back a, a, just a little bit over time, but it's, uh, I don't know. Like I was saying to you earlier, I, one day I look in the mirror and it's like, God, I got to shave this stupid thing off. And then the next day, it kind of looks cool. I guess I'll keep it for a while longer. So, you know, I, I could just have a, have a, a grand awakening one morning and just get out the garden shears and just chop it off. I don't know. Let's we'll see. I don't have a straight answer for you. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a lot of praise for your beard in the in the comments today. So uh, thank you, thank you all. <laughs> all well, right, I, I had I, I I'm doing this thing. Uh, I'm posting. I have someone to post for me, and I, uh, I I started doing something called Tuesday Tunes from the Tomb. You know, it's on Facebook and all those Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, just tunes that I've written that have never seen the light of day, uh, and. I just posted one this past Tuesday and someone said, shave the beard. Like, oh, well, that's not very nice. 
So, well, Marcus Luscom makes a good point, and if and when you ever shave your beard, you should donate it to the Banjo Hall of Fame for a display case. It's mightily <laughs> impressive. And on that bombshell, that, that, that means a, a lot to me. That means a lot. To me. Okay. Do you want to? Do you want to give us a quick uh, rendition as we go out? And, uh, yeah, say farewell. and then uh, Tony, thank you so much for your time. As always, it's always a pleasure seeing you. And where can people get the album? That's probably the most important part right now. Um, uh, I mean, if you want the CD, you can order it on my website. I have a store there. You can order it there, but it's also on Spotify and Apple and um, all sorts of other places. So yeah. Awesome. It's available. Awesome. And Go check you. it out. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Dave. Absolutely. Good to see you. And I, I play Farewell Blues, except I already played it. Darn. I'll do, uh, I'll do John Hardy. Go out with a little John Hardy. Sounds great. That's good. Cool.